Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, if you are new here, welcome. Every week, um, every Thursday, to be precise, I answer around 10 of your questions. And I get those questions from my podcast channel called Opinions That Don't Matter because that is a podcast that I have with my husband. And Ask Katie Anything video and audio is housed there. And I ask the questions on Mondays. I want to say it's like 6am Pacific Standard Time, but don't hold me to that. But on Mondays, I post in the community tab asking for your questions. You place them in the comments down below. I pick eight of the most liked questions, meaning the ones that get the most thumbs ups. And if you have a question very similar to that, you can leave it in the comment below that question, and I'll add it to the question that'll get selected. And then the last two questions I answer are just random. I just scroll through them really quick and just pick one. And so that means that even if that one doesn't have the most thumbs ups, you still have a chance of getting your question answered because I heard many of you were frustrated about that and I totally understand. So without further ado and without further explanation, let's get into those questions. Question number one says, Hey, Katie, I am a child of emotional neglect, and I was wondering if you have any tips on how to stop minimizing and downplaying my trauma. Even calling it trauma makes me uncomfortable because it wasn't overt abuse. I can't stop feeling like my trauma is invalid because I can't stop comparing myself to those who were physically neglected or emotionally and physically or sexually abused. Sometimes I wish something really bad would happen to me so that I could finally feel validated in my emotions. To me, it seems like emotional neglect alone can't cause all these pervasive relationship and attachment issues that I struggle with. So I continue to invalidate my feelings and invalidate the fact that emotional neglect is traumatic. I don't know that I can't rely on therapist, or I do know, sorry, <laughs> I do know that I can't rely on therapists to reassure and validate me. And I know that the validation needs to come from me. So do you have any tips on how to do this specifically? Thank you and love you. And there was also a comment that I'll get into after, um, you know, overcoming this emotional neglect and talking about talks about a little bit. So I'll get into that after this. But the first part of this question, how how can we stop minimizing and downplaying the trauma? It, it's it's hard. And I, I'm not going to pretend with you and try to tell you that it's super easy or what you're experiencing isn't normal or very common because it is. And the reason that we do minimize or invalidate or downplay our trauma is honestly because trauma, if you guys don't know, is so closely connected, almost always seems to be best friends with our three least favorite people called shame, embarrassment, and guilt. And when we find ourselves in this shame, embarrassment, or guilt spirals, it's really hard for us to look at our situation you know, with clear vision and be able to see it for what it is. And one of the ways, so because of that, one of the ways that we can kind of stop or at least maybe prevent ourselves from continuing to downplay or minimize is to imagine it coming from someone, like happening to someone else. So imagine that what happened to you happened to your best friend or happened to me or happened to someone else that you know, know or like or anything like that. Just imagine it happening to someone that you care about. And what would you say to them about that trauma? Would there be judgment? Would you tell them that it wasn't that big of a deal or that it's not actual trauma because no one really touched them? It wasn't so overt. Would you say that? Hmm. And if the answer most likely is no, then why? What about it? validates it for that person. Sometimes it can help to just externalize the problem. Often we're so much more judgmental over ourselves and our own situations, the way we deal with it, that we can just be so ruthless. But if we look 
add it on someone else, happening to someone else, almost the, you know, the exact same thing, we can have a completely different view. So that's one way to kind of acknowledge the minimization or invalidation and stop it. If we can just kind of externalize it for a while, that can help us better understand our situation. And by validating this other person that we're pretending it happened to, we're validating ourselves. So that's kind of a sneaky way to get to it. And then moving on to another option is to start noticing the conversation that you have with yourself about trauma or abuse or the emotional neglect that you sustained, which is abuse, by the way. How are you talking to yourself about it? What are those things that you're saying that are minimizing it? Let's start writing those down. And then instead of thinking, oh, I have to think positively or I have to argue back against it, uh uh, that's not what I'm asking. What I want you to do for this one is to start coming up with more balanced, meaning not uh, necessarily positive, but definitely not negative thoughts or what we have called in the past bridge statements. So if the negative thought about our trauma or emotional neglect is it's not that bad, they never really hurt me, they never really hit me or whatever, then a more balanced thought would be, yeah, they never really overtly abused me. However, neglect is still with me and it's still very upsetting and I still struggle. So give those bridge statements a try. I know they can be hard, but again, we're not trying to do that toxic positivity like just think positive, just smile, think it's okay, talk to yourself more nicely. We know that it's really hard and we don't believe it. So instead, we have to build this bridge from what I like to call like dumpster fire island over into, you know, positive positivity island or like you know, lollipops and ice cream. I don't know. And so we have to build that bridge to get there. And all of those little pieces of that bridge are those more balanced statements. Again, another example would be, it's possible that all abuse is still abuse. And it's possible that neglect is abuse. I'm open to that. I don't like the word. I don't know if that's what happened to me. Remember, we don't have to fully switch it. But I'm open to that thought. I could maybe get behind that belief. Okay, so those are all kinds of bridge statements slash more balanced ideas. Those all come along with like possibility, maybe I'm open to it could be all of those words are all kind of the mm, bridge statement land. So live in that, try to get used to it. I know it's uncomfortable. We don't have to believe them at first. We just have to keep trying. But identifying those thoughts and negative conversations that we're having with ourselves about the abuse, it will really just help us to be more aware and to shift it little by little. Because trust me when I tell you, if you're able to shift those all just a little bit into a more balanced space, you'll feel the difference like so intensely. Okay, so those are some, those are two main ideas. And then the third and final one before I get into the added on question to this is to check your facts. Now, I know I mentioned that briefly at the beginning. I was like, that's not what we're doing here. That's because we're going to do it here. So in this one, I want you to just another way to prevent ourselves from continuing to minimize and invalidate our abuse or even just our feelings. This applies to all of us, to be honest, is checking your facts. So when we have, so let's say we've done those first two options, right? We have come through these bridge statements and now we're like, it's still not good. I still minimize. I still invalidate myself all the time. That's when we, it's really helpful to pay attention to those thoughts and then see if we have any facts to support those thoughts. Because usually the only facts we have are other thoughts. And you might hear my mom's dog, Charlotte. She needs the pets. But we have to check our facts on that. We have to make sure that we're not just pretending that something 
happened or really is true because we've had multiple thoughts about it. So often that that's the only evidentiary support we have is just more thoughts. If you think about it, that's just crazy, right? You can't, you couldn't bring someone to trial just because you had a bunch of thoughts about it and that that proves it. So that doesn't work here either. And so what, what I mean by checking the facts is when we have one of those negative thoughts, right? Um, emotional neglect is not the same. It's not as bad as someone who was physically abused. Let's say that's a very common thought or belief of ours. Then I want you to check in on that. So even in this question, I already have evidence that doesn't support that thought. The evidence is that you have pervasive relationship and attachment issues. Does that just happen out of nowhere? Hmm. Do we have research that actually shows us that emotional neglect leads to those? Hmm. I think we do. Has Katie created videos in the past where I've talked about this? Yes, I have. And did the neglect feel bad and make it hard for me to connect with others or trust others? Hmm. Maybe it did, right? We just have to check those facts, see what we have in our life, in our experience with research, what other people are saying. That's all fair game too can check in on those facts and see if they line up and if they support that belief. If they don't, you know, I'd encourage you to tell yourself, you know, I can think this, but that doesn't make it true. And I actually check my facts and it's not true. And even just the act of doing that can help us feel better and help us stop minimizing our own experience so much. So that's those are really my main three tips, okay? Now, the comment on this question we also had, um, it says, I had both emotional neglect and emotional abuse from different people. One was a teacher when I was about eight years old who would humiliate me, scream in my face and throw things at me, pushing me around and isolate me from my classmates. I feel embarrassed to tell my stories because I think people will just think it's nothing and that I'm overreacting. How do you overcome this? So if we have suffered some form of abuse, any kind, emotional neglect, emotional abuse, physical, sexual, whatever. Honestly, the best way through it is with a therapist who is trauma-informed, ideally a trauma specialist, but at least someone who understands it. Like I don't consider myself a trauma specialist, but I believe that I am trauma-informed. Over my years online and with my patients in my practice and working in a hospital and eating disorder treatment center and all the places I've worked over the years, I've come in contact with trauma so much. And then research for my book that's coming out this September called Traumatized, I believe myself to be very trauma-informed. And I will easily refer people out if I feel like they need like EMDR or something more specialized than what I can offer. But I'm also aware and can help someone not only put a trauma timeline together, help them put their trauma into a story or narrative form, help them talk through it, and then look into other options like schema therapy, somatic experiencing, all these other trauma treatments that are out there, right? And EMDR is one of those as well. That's why I mentioned it. I have videos about those types of, uh, you know, treatment. I I have my friend and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman on my channel. We've talked about trauma treatment. She's a trauma specialist. So anyways, there's lots of information out there. If you want to read more, watch more, understand it, hopefully a little bit more. And so the best way to overcome it is to work with someone who's trauma informed or a trauma specialist and process it through. It's like I've talked about this on multiple podcasts now, um, and there's even a reference to it in my book that's coming out where I it's like the going on a bear hunt, can't go around it, can't go over it, we got to go through it. And I know it sucks. I know it's hard. It sometimes feels like it'd be easier to just ignore that it ever happened, but we all know that ends up not being easier. We end up erupting in other ways and have other issues in our life like anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, all of those things and more. And so overcoming it along with the like 
I know I've ta- we talked about in this first part was like how to overcome that invalidation or feeling like you're overreacting using those. I gave you three kinds of ideas. And if you have others, feel free to leave them in the comments. But then when it comes to, you know, actually overcoming the abuse altogether, we have to work with a trauma specialist. We have to work with someone who really gets it, who can help us process through all the, all the pain we sustained and maybe have numbed out from for years. And I know it's hard work. And I know it's really uncomfortable to talk about those things, but trust me when I tell you that with the right support, it can and will get better. Not to mention that I really think there is a huge amount of healing that can be done in group therapy when it comes to our trauma work. Yes, I know a lot of you just cringed because the thought of telling a whole bunch of people about it, you know, it's hard enough to tell one person, let alone a group of people. But when we get to hear other people talk about their trauma and we realize just how not alone we are, I am telling you, there's just nothing like it. That support and that understanding is just not something that we can get any other way. And so I'd really encourage you to to see if that's an option for you in your area as well. And I've mentioned this in the past, but the hopeforrecovery.org, it's hope, the number four, recovery.org. You can go to the calendar on their website. And some of you, and I mentioned this a few times too, they are at their the bare bones of that company. It is a religious organization. So when you come to their homepage, it'll be like, do you want us to pray for you? Yes, that's part of who they are, but that's not a part of all their groups. If their groups are religious-based, they they say it in what it is. Um, I've offered my time. You guys know I'm not religious at all, and I've um, offered up some of my time to answer questions for them. And I can tell you that it's, it's really just a lot of trauma and eating disorder support, and they even have trauma-informed yoga. It's a great resource. So if you struggle you know, financially or there's nothing in your area, that's a great place to go because it's, it's free support. And they're always opening up new groups, so you can check that out. Okay, let's move on to question number two, and that is, hi, Katie. I feel like I spend a lot of my time playing through scenarios in my head about different events. For instance, if there's a conversation I want to have with someone, I will play it through in my mind before I actually have it in person. I often find myself disappointed after certain things in life because they didn't live up to the picture that I had in my mind. I was wondering why this happens and if it could possibly be something along the lines of maladaptive daydreaming. I hope you're doing wonderful. That's interesting because I'm actually working on a video for my main channel all about maladaptive daydreaming. I wouldn't, I don't think that's what it is. And here's why. Maladaptive daydreaming is something that we, we do as an escape from our the stress of our life. This is usually in response to like high levels of anxiety or stress or a trauma trigger. There can be a lot of different reasons that we, you know, want to escape our life. Oh, our dog is back. Come over here, sweetie beauty. Um, and so there always has to be a reason that we we need to escape and need to be the, doing that daydreaming. Now, when it comes to these playing through scenarios, yes, there's a reason, but it's not like a trauma trigger or an intense stressor. I believe this is more anxiety-based, meaning that in order to manage the anxiety of having a conversation, doing a thing, going to an event, any of those things, in order for us to push through, we have to kind of play it out first as a means to prepare us so that our system can calm down and we feel prepared. So anxiety is my first hypothesis. The second and kind of linked to anxiety is that sense of control that we get. By the way, I've talked about this in previous podcasts. Control is just an illusion. We don't really have it. We just pretend and think that we do for brief periods of time until the life reminds us that we don't. And, you know, that's disappointing. But I think it's kind of those 
those two. So this this false sense of control and an anxiety component. Now you'd have to tell me more to know if that is something that you feel is feeding this, but I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that you haven't struggled with some symptoms of social anxiety in the past, like not wanting to go um, out in groups and not liking to be with more than one person at a time or struggling to make eye contact with strangers or smile or feeling really nervous about, you know, going to the grocery store or going even going to work if there's a lot of people there or if you have to you know talk with someone that you don't know very well like the lead up to that is almost something you can't cope with you know maybe having a panic attack or something like that I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't experienced that in your life. And also know that this is very common. I even have my anxious patients on the flip side not play through scenarios before they happen but play through them after they've happened forever and ever and ever until we just like, you know, wakes up at two in the morning. We're like, why am I thinking about that conversation I had 10 years ago? What the fuck? But that's very common too in that anxious part. And I think that's why that's what I think it is. And that's my hypothesis here. But I would love to hear more. Like, what do you guys think? Do you think that that is, you know, part of the anxiety thing? Or do you think it's more maladaptive daydreaming? Maybe I'm missing something here. Again, there's no diagnostic criteria for maladaptive daydreaming. We just know that it, it has like these plots and specific people and it's usually in relation to things happening in our life, but it can also be a complete and total escape. And so maybe maybe this role playing is maladaptive daydreaming. But again, I think the maladaptive daydreaming would be occurring because of that stress or anxiety just getting to a level that's too uncomfortable for us. So we have to take it somewhere else to work through it. But yeah, so those are my thoughts about it. Very, very common, usually anxiety driven. It could even be part of OCD. Now, if you don't know, OCD is when we have obsessions. We have these, these certain things in our life. It could be like, a lot of people think it's cleaning. It's, it's often not. It could be checking things a certain number of times. Continue to check to make sure the door is locked or you lock the car, or the oven is off or the lights are off or any kind of that checking stuff. It could also be, you know, having to collect certain things or focusing a lot on how we look and obsessing over, you know, our hair or something like that. And then the compulsions are these actions that we do that reduce the anxiety that can come along with those obsessions. Meaning if I don't check to make sure the lights are off, then there could be a spark in the my electrical work in my home, my home could burn up, right? We can have these thoughts and beliefs about it. So we have to do the compulsion to make the anxiety go down. So I could see that applying here where it's like, I have these obsessions about social interactions. And in order for the anxiety or worry or upset to go down, so that I can do that thing or continue living my life, the compulsion is for me to play it out. And so I play it out um, before you know, beforehand. I don't know. So those are just a few of my thoughts, but I'd love to hear yours. So leave more thoughts in the comments down below. Um, but those are just my, it's my hypothesis so far. Let's move on to question number three. And that says, hi, Katie, can you talk about finding the root of your unhappiness or sadness? You frequently talk about how without resolving the root of our issues, you cannot get rid of those unhealthy coping skills. How do you know what the problem is? I'm in my early 20s, and after the uh, I left the nest, I realized how sad I am when I'm by myself. Not because I'm lonely, but because no one distracts me from my feelings anymore. Oh, that's interesting. How do I know where to start? Is trauma always the reason for such deep-rooted feelings? No, not always. I sometimes struggle to admit I have trauma, but on the days I do, I still question, what if it's not the root of my issues, and processing trauma will solve, will solve nothing? How do you know if it's related? Okay. First of all, 
it's it's not always trauma for anybody out there who's like, well, I don't, you know, I feel really unhappy unhappy or super, super sad all the time. And I haven't been any, I don't have any trauma in my past that I can recall. I mean, maybe I do, but I don't remember and I'm not sure. It's not always trauma-based. Some of us are just more predisposed to struggle with depression in our lives. Could be genetically speaking. It could be, you know, we are genetically predisposed and we had something happen in our life to kind of turn on that gene so that our depression is almost, for lack of a better term, is like activated. That could be what's causing it. And unfortunately, that's just kind of how things are, right? That's like why my hair is like frizzy curly because of genes. It's not anything that I can really, I mean, I guess I could get it chemically straightened, but you know what I mean. It's just like a genetic thing that we just have. And we all have our own genetic makeup for better, for worse. So there's that. And also in this question, you know, this person mentions that they struggle to admit they have trauma. So I think that there is something there. And going back to that first question that I answered about minimizing or invalidating our trauma, I think that's happening here a little bit. And so if the lack of people distracting us from how we feel is causing us to actually experience all of the feelings that maybe we stuffed down in the past due to the trauma, then that, I mean, I can't think of anything else that would be the root of the issue. And I don't really, maybe I haven't, I shouldn't have put so much emphasis on the root of the root of things, but I believe that we all kind of have a a seed that started this, right? We have a seed of something that happened that could be maybe our our parents divorced and that was a really traumatic time for us. Maybe we, you know, uh, struggled to to deal with bullying at school or maybe, you know, we were abused in some fashion. So we have that trauma. We have that root. And I know that it sometimes can be difficult for us to kind of track back and figure out what that root really is. I, I guess I would just encourage all of you to not worry so much about is this the thing or not. It's more like, are we being honest with ourselves about what we've been through and what we're experiencing? And can we, and here's the hard part and why therapy is so healing and so fucking difficult, is can we be curious without judging as we try to figure it out? Because all, even in my own work in therapy, there have been times where I thought, oh, that must be the root of the issue. It's probably because my dad worked away from home. My dad was um, a contractor, so he'd be gone on jobs for sometimes, you know, three, four months. I think once, six months at a time. I'm like, is that why, you know, for a while, you know, unavailable people were attractive to me? Is that, you know, you can kind of hypothesize what the root of this is. But then come to find out that like six other women in my family struggle with anxiety and worry already. So then like some of the stuff that I'm struggling with probably came from that because genetically speaking, I'm probably more predisposed for anxiety. And I know that we can sometimes think we have to figure out what this big issue is or this the big root of it, right? And it can feel like maybe I'm not digging deep enough. I'm telling you, as long as you're questioning and being curious and not judging yourself as you learn about it, you'll get there. You'll figure it out. And I can tell you with 100% certainty that the more you just talk about your process and what you think it might be and work to heal, especially in the, uh, in the case of the person who has this question, this trauma that you're invalidating, what is it? What happened? Can we talk about it? Can we allow ourselves to feel that sadness, that unhappiness without judgment? Because my guess is that there, it's like this cycle where we feel unhappy and sad because no one's distracting us from those feelings, right? So those feelings are happening. 
then we judge those feelings, right? We have thoughts about those feelings. We're like, I'm such a loser. I shouldn't have done that. I don't know why I feel this way. I blah, 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 whatever we want to say, all that shit talking we do to ourselves, right? Then that feeds into more unhappiness and sadness. And we just go round and round and round. And we can get caught up in that. And so if we can kind of stop that cycle, so we feel unhappy and sad, what if instead of judging and shit talking ourselves, we said, you know, I have had some tough things happen to me. I'm still trying to figure out what it really was. But it's okay to feel sad. You know, what if that was the response? I think we'd have a completely different outcome and, and hopefully get us out of that cycle that we're kind of caught in. And yes, I know it's hard work, but just being aware and trying our best, it's all I'm asking. Um, and then there was a comment after this question. Oh, at the end, sorry, I'm missing something here. It says, um, is trauma always the reason for such deep-rooted feelings? Not always, but in this case, it sounds like it is. A lot of times it can just be... Uh, you know, difficult times or genetic predispositions. But a lot of times, again, you guys, I've talked about how we think of traumas as these big events. And a lot of times they're these smaller events that have led up to us feeling overwhelmed, like moving a lot as a kid or maybe going through a divorce. I know divorce can be super traumatic, but I'm saying not for everybody. Maybe it was just an adjustment for us, the, the divorce, or maybe we were bullied for a short period of time, or maybe it was emotional neglect, right? And it didn't feel like there's anything overt and large, but it just kept happening, right? This thing kept happening to us. So I don't want you to think that traumas are always this one big event. It can be a lot of little events as well. Um, and then, uh, okay, I sometimes struggle to admit I have trauma. Okay. And then the last thing is, how do I know if it's related? So when we are doing that digging, and we're trying to figure out what the root of the cause is. Can we, in some fashion, with the help of our therapist, this is where a therapist comes in big time, is help us make connections from the trauma or experience to the way that we're reacting now. Like, for instance, I was talking about how, you know, on me finding unavailable men attractive or something could have been due to the fact that my dad wasn't home as much when I was growing up. He was often on at jobs, you know, he'd be home all sometimes for like a year because they'd just be between jobs. And my mom would be like, please go do something. Um, and so that's when like he'd build our back house or work on the garden or whatever. So, but there were these times when he wasn't and I could easily draw that correlation to a pattern in my life. Do you see what I mean? Or the genetic predisposition. I can see that pattern in other women in my family that are blood relatives of mine and apply it to my life. So in the case of this, are you seeing this, you know, unhappiness and sadness? Is it, is it a reaction out of the pain that you feel from the trauma? Or can we draw a line to that? Can we find some kind of connections in there? Have we actually admitted that that bad trauma or upset happened to us? Have we allowed ourselves the time needed to put it into a story form, um, to process it through, talk about it, maybe do EMDR or schema therapy or somatic experiencing? Have we given ourselves an opportunity to work through it? If we haven't, then the way to know if it is connected or not is to do that work. And then might be surprised that unhappiness and sadness might go away. And then we have our answer. I know we like to know ahead of time because like, why would I want to work through this? It's super uncomfortable. It always benefits you to work through it. Um, but I know therapy is really hard, but that's kind of how we can find out if it's connected or not. Now, there was a comment on this question that said, Katie, counseling sounds like a great place to get everything out. But what if you know you need to talk about your roots and they are traumatic but also can be taboo. Also, it could be could it be illegal to discuss it in counseling? And pretty much what this person is getting at is that they're worried about their therapist reporting them or what the limits of their privacy are. And I, I've told you guys, as far as I know, in, in the United States, in the state of California where I'm licensed, we can only break privacy. First of all, if you're under 18, 
you do like you do still hold your confidentiality, but you're not an adult. So parents can be told certain things. Now, I was taught in my law and ethics professor, who's amazing. I thought love still love her. She's wonderful. She always told us that it was like sex, drugs and rock and roll, like things that could endanger the child and the parents should know about because it's something that could cause other issues like unwanted pregnancy, STDs. Uh, drug addiction, you know, drinking and driving or minor in possession of alcohol. Like you could run into legal problems and other mental health issues and physical issues too. And so those are the reasons that we break confidentiality, but you still always tell your patient ahead of time and then, you know, do it with their blessing if possible. Usually I've actually never had to do it without my client's blessing, knock on wood, but that's, that's how that works. And then when you are an adult, the only reasons we would ever break confidentiality is if you're a danger to yourself or others, if you're there's an imminent threat to like someone, like there's the Tarasoff law, which is kind of like the danger to others. Like if you're going to harm someone and you tell me that about that person that you're going to harm, I have to do my best to warn them. Um, or when it comes to like the abuse, I have to report abuse. And so if a, a dependent adult, an elder, or a child is in danger, meaning they've abused you and I have reason to believe because you told me that there's another child or dependent adult or elder that's in their care that could be being abused now, I have to report it. So those are the only real reasons that we would report it. Other than that, you know, you can tell them things. And if you are over 18 and you're talking about something that happened back in the day, it's I'm no longer mandated. You get to choose, again, unless there's someone there that's in danger. And that... Those are the laws as they apply, again, in the state of California. But I just wanted you to know those, the limits to confidentiality. And it's important, something you all should ask, and you should be getting part of what you sign, the paperwork you sign when you see a therapist is called informed consent. And along that comes a lot of the confidentiality, like in all my paperwork, when my patients first, like, come in to see me for the first time, in their intake paperwork is always that information. So if you forgot because it's kind of overwhelming, it's a lot of stuff to read, ask your therapist, hey, what are the limits to confidentiality? You know, can I get a copy of that? Because it's a lot for me to read and understand. And they're going to say yes. And we always have a shit ton of those copies on hand because you have every right to ask for that copy and we have to give it to you. So ask for that if you have any concerns. Now let's move into question number four. Oh, as I just spill water on my phone. Let's dry it off on my leg. Do not fret. Okay, question number four says, Hey, Katie, what's the difference between a very confident person and a narcissistic person? What's the line between confidence and narcissism? If a person is too confident, does that make them narcissistic? I'm curious what you think about it. I sometimes confuse a narcissistic, a narcissistic person with a very confident person. I love this question, and there were a ton of great answers in the comments below it. So thank you to everyone who gave answers because you were right on the money. So the difference between a very confident person and a narcissistic person, if we just want to bare bones it, a narcissistic person doesn't actually feel good about themselves. I think that's a common misconception. Think of a narcissist, I always call it like their puffer chesting. I don't know why I even use that term, but think of like a... I think of it like a, a chicken or rooster, like they'll fluff up their feathers and make themselves look bigger than they are to like scare off someone, right? Narcissists are doing that all the time. They are fluffing themselves up to look more confident and better than they actually feel or know that they are. Uh, narcissistic personality disorder is usually like we've created this uh, facade around us to protect us from having to acknowledge the pain 
and upset that we feel. A lot of people who are have narcissistic personality disorder have been traumatized. A lot of them come from families of abuse and things like that. Not all. Some people, unfortunately, just like other mental illnesses, we're talking about depression, you can be genetically predisposed. Narcissistic people can be genetically predisposed as well. So don't think that it's only this, but that is often the case. And so someone who's confident actually feels good about who they are. They feel uh, empowered and, uh, you know, confident in their abilities and supported by those around them. And it just, you feel good. A narcissist actually never feels good. They just pretend that they feel good. And so that is really the main difference. And I don't want to convolute it too much with like the diagnostic criteria because I don't really think that's necessary here. So the line is really, because I asked what the line between it is, is really whether it's actual confidence or not. Now, people throw around, this is the problem I have with people throwing around mental health terms without actual knowledge or understanding. It's part of the reason why this channel exists. If you guys don't remember back in 2011 when Sean and I started this channel, it was with the goal of helping people understand that eating disorders aren't just a vanity thing. Like I wanted people to know what eating disorders were really about. If you don't know much about me, if you're a new subscriber, a new viewer, I specialize in the treatment of eating disorders and self-injury. That's a lot of the work that I've done in my private practice. And as I've worked in treatment centers and all sorts of stuff over the years. So that's really where the, you know, the core of my work and my experience comes from. And so people need to stop saying, oh, that's so narcissistic or they're such a narcissist, you know, because they're taking photos of themselves and putting it on the internet. Mm, it could, it's possible that they could be a narcissist, but maybe they just feel really good about themselves or maybe they want to empower other people by sharing their stories. Like a good friend of mine, Rosanna Burgos um, of Mama B of the AB family, she shares a lot about like how to build up confident children and how she's worked on her own confidence. And and that's a beautiful thing to watch. And it has nothing to do with being narcissistic. It's it's actually comes out of a place of of fulfillment and validation and self-support. And so that's that's really the difference. I don't want to talk too much more about this. Um, and if a person is too confident, does that make them narcissistic? No. That's just one component of a narcissist. And if you want to learn more, I have videos about narcissistic personality disorder. I should probably do an updated one on the diagnostic criteria. Maybe I could work in some skits so you could see it play out, like how it could look. But just remember, people who are narcissistic don't actually feel good about themselves, <clears throat> will never apologize for things that they've done wrong. A confident person apologizes easily. <clears throat> they will also, you know, um, always see the bad side in people, look to create drama and stir up, you know, issues. They can struggle to even see their role in anything. They always blame everybody else. It's just a very different type of person. And even narcissists can, they often don't, have empathy for other people, meaning they can't even imagine what it's like to put themselves in someone else's shoes. They, they can't do that mentally. It's like they're incapable, which is really hard for people to understand. I, we had a lot of backlash uh, when I did that video with Shane years ago about a, a sociopath, which is someone with antisocial personality disorder, because they don't have empathy. And it's really hard. It, it's nearly impossible for those of us with empathy to imagine someone who doesn't have it. It's like, we just can't because that's not our brain. But you have to think that someone with narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, both of those types of people don't look at other people and think, oh, maybe I'm in their way, I should get out of the way. Or um, I wonder how that made them feel. That is not, they're not capable. 
instead it's more about like, what could I do to get that person to make me look better? Could I make them do this for me so that my needs are met? People are seen more as tools or, you know, chess pieces in their game of life rather than other humans with emotions. And I know that's really hard to like grasp and understand. But if you're even worried about being a narcissist, I can pretty much tell you you're not. So I hope that that just helps clear it up. That's the problem with using terms so loosely like we do, you know, like, oh my God, I'm so OCD. I had to turn check to make sure that light was off once. Like that's not what OCD is, you know, or you're that person's so narcissistic. That's not what that is, you know? And so just being aware, and I think we can all do a little bit better. I, and I'm not perfect either. Like even as a mental health professional, I'm sure I've said things in my regular life that are not appropriate like that. Like that seems kind of narcissistic when I don't know, and I shouldn't make that comment. And so I promise to do better. Hopefully you'll do better. And as we're mo both trying and being more educated, we can stop people from thinking that confidence means narcissism because that's just like one small piece of it. Okay, let's move on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie. Why does my therapist say I suffer from fear of abandonment, although I actually haven't been physically abandoned by anyone before? Hmm. My parents tried their best in caring for me, but they don't really allow me to express my feelings. Crying is unacceptable because they did not beat me and seldom praise me even when I scored well for tests when I was young. My brother does not suffer from any mental illness, which makes it feel like it's my problem or fault since we grew up together in the same environment. I have recently started doing some inner child work, but I'm still struggling with how it can help my problems. Thank you and lots of love. Okay, what we have here is what I was talking about I think it's the very first question. Yes, it is the very first question. Emotional neglect. I have a video. Um, I think it's called Emotionally Unavailable Mother or Parents. Just look up Katie Morton Emotionally Unavailable on YouTube and it will come up. That's what's happened to you, unfortunately. When parents, it, they can look good on paper, right? Parents can buy us a home where we have our own bedroom. They can put uh, clothes on our back. They can feed us. They can take us to and from school. Heck, they can even put us in like a fancy pantsy private school and get us all these tutors and all. You know, we're in sports and like from the outside, our life looks fucking amazing. And I, but what we're missing is that emotional connection and support that that's really what children need. More than buying children things, children just need to be heard, have parents who seek to understand listen and support, like checking in with our child when they're crying and how are you feeling? And that must've been really uncomfortable. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. And, you know, we're looking for that and it's okay to cry. You know, I think that that whole like boys don't cry bullshit should be stopped if it isn't already stopped because every human cries, we all feel sadness and it should be something that we are open and free to explore, especially as we develop. It's like, as we become more emotionally intelligent, we should be learning about that. So that self not being praised very often can feel really invalidating, like you're not seen, you're not important, again, neglected. You can't express your feelings, again, emotionally neglected. And when it comes to, okay, so that, I want I want to just explain that because I think we see it play out, like my mom and Larry have been watching the show Dynasty, I think it's called on Netflix. I don't necessarily recommend it. It's pretty dramatic and a little bit too much for me. But the Kerrigan family, if I'm getting this wrong, I apologize. But anyway, they're this super, super wealthy family in Atlanta. And the kids all struggle because what do they miss most? Time with their parents, feeling seen, heard, and understood. They're neglected. They're passed off to nannies. And other people are taking care of them. And I'm not saying that having babysitters or nannies is a bad thing. 
I'm saying that parents should still be present, ever present, checking on children and emotionally supporting them. Because a good on paper parent where it's like, well, they have all the means to do whatever. Yeah, money doesn't buy you happiness is an old saying for a reason. It's true. Money buys you things. Money makes some things easier. But after, there's tons of research, you guys can search this. I uh, I forget when I did a video, it's like four years ago or so. But there is a ton of research out of the US, Australia, and the UK that proves that once we can pay our bills, meaning we don't have any, we're not stressing about paying our rent or our mortgage, we can have a car that runs, you know, if we have an a, upset of like, oh, I need new tires, we can afford it. Once those basic needs are met, our happiness level does not go up as we make more money. It actually starts to go down. So like it goes up for a certain point and then there's a decline. And so having parents who like did everything and it kind of looks good on paper does not mean that we weren't neglected and that we don't have a right to struggle. And so of course that fear of abandonment is ever present because you as a child didn't really get, you We were emotionally abandoned. I think we think of abandonment as a physical, like you said, we haven't been physically abandoned. We don't have to be left you know, like parents left and never came back or something for us, for us to struggle with abandonment issues. It could be part of a BPD diagnosis or borderline personality disorder, or it could be because we were emotionally neglected and we felt emotionally abandoned. That is very much just as, uh, you know, difficult and just as much of a reason for you to struggle as a physical aban a physically abandoned situation could, you know, could create. So you have every right to feel that way. Um, and then, the, okay. And the last part I wanted to cover was how you said your brother doesn't suffer from any mental illnesses, which makes it feel like it's my fault or problem. Um, I talk about this. I wrote a whole chapter on resilience in my book uh, that'll come out this September. And that's what this is. Unfortunately, so resilience is our ability to weather life storms and come out on the other side. Okay. It's our coping skills. It's our ability to have people shout at us and be like, ugh, fine, whatever, and move on. We can we can deal. We can have a number of other people that are there to support us. We can have a distraction technique or a coping skill, a way to process through what's going on. All of those things help, help us build up resilience, eating regularly, drinking water, getting enough sleep. All these things help us feel okay so that we can keep going, okay? That's just good old-fashioned resilience. And unfortunately... Some of us are born with it more than others, meaning some people are just more naturally resilient. I have members of my own family who, um, even like my sister-in-law, she is super quick to reach out to people. She has really close friends all the time. She's always connecting with people and getting that support because that helps her weather life storms. When COVID hit and everything, because her, she's an essential worker, she made time to get together with the people she'd already been working with that day so that they could like debrief. Like it's so natural to her. She's naturally more resilient than I am. I have to make an effort to do stuff like that. And so that therefore, if her and I had the exact same situation happen to us, I'd probably feel worse than she would. And that's the situation with your brother. Your brother is just more naturally resilient, probably has more social skills or more... Uh, a lot of times kids who do really well in like music or sports have that group to lean on when we're going through it. It could be things like that. You have, you've, they probably built mastery in something. And so that helps them feel confident enough to create a different, like another support group. So they don't have to really engage emotionally with the family. They can get their needs met somewhere else. So everybody's different. Everyone has a different level of resilience. That doesn't mean it's your problem or fault. It just means you're gonna have to work a little bit harder, just like I would to take care of yourself so that you can get through this. 
And I have a video if you wanted to search on YouTube, Katie Morton Coping Skills, it'll be there and it can help you kind of start building up some of that resilience, okay? I hope that helps. I know it's really hard and a lot of us, you know, feel like emotional neglect or emotional abuse just isn't as bad or the same as that what one of my favorite quotes is comparison is a thief of joy and in mental health issues comparison robs us of our compassion and ability to acknowledge when we've been hurt so recognize when you're you know doing that comparison thing and try to stop okay talk about it in therapy try to find some healthier more balanced more bridge statement e ways to talk to yourself about it okay Okay, moving on to question number six, and that is, hey, Katie, how do you get over social anxiety when you keep failing at conversations whenever you try? It doesn't matter how many times I try, I keep failing at it, even though I know I have to keep doing it to get better. I don't even understand what you're supposed to say most of the time. I get so stressed in any social situation that I can't really think any ideas. Okay, I have a lot of ideas, and there was a ton of comments below this of people offering their own insights. Um, and someone else left a comment, and I'm going to read it because it's very similar and right in line with this. It says, this is me also. Conversations are really hard. However, I suffered a lot of trauma at home. So Katie, would you address or treat social anxiety in the same way? So I'll get into that too, okay? Now, when it comes to social anxiety, it is, I am glad that you are still exposing yourself to it and doing the thing, right? You're still trying, However, what we probably need to work on is role play in therapy. I've done that with so many of my patients, fake conversations. When they come into session, they'll know that they have to start the conversation with me. They have to ask me how I'm doing and we'll do at least 10 minutes of like what I would call cocktail talk where it's like very lighthearted, look at the, the weather and how was your day and is work okay? And you know that kind of, I don't know, the conversations that we all hate, those very surface level, basic conversations that don't really get us anywhere, but it's, it's how we get to know each other, right? It's that light conversation and it's kind of those first meetings and what usually prevents those of us with social anxiety from ever engaging at all because it's like, well, to have that conversation is just too painful, right? So role play and therapy is a great technique and a great tool. Also, I don't know. I'm trying to think if I can think of any resources off the top of my head. I don't think Hope for Recovery has anxiety-based, uh, you know, groups online. But finding some groups, I know that's like the antithesis of this. But if if you can at least for a moment be like, hey, everybody else in this group feels exactly the same way I feel. At least we're on an even playing field, right? We're starting at the same level. Some of that can be really helpful too. Um, I've even, I used to run a, an anxiety group for teen girls back, this is like, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And the first few sessions were really uncomfortable for them, but they became the best of friends. I mean, not all of them are like the best friends, but they be, they got really close. They would get together, you know, and get smoothies and whatevers and play soccer together. And they did things together outside of the group. And I thought that was really, really great. And so finding a group, I think, can be really healing. I know some things are limited with COVID, but I think Honestly, we have more resources online now than we ever have. So I think it would behoove you to search, you know, or if anybody knows of any social anxiety groups online, leave it in the comments. But I would um, look into that. So those are the two. Role play with your therapist. Look into the groups. There's also meetups and you can pick some that are, you know, meetup.com. You can do things outdoors where it's, you know, 
maybe safer, wear masks if whatever makes you comfortable. But that could be another way to meet up has been great for a lot of my viewers and, and patients over the years. You guys have told me all the time how it helps you get together with other people who have dogs or love coffee or like to go hiking or, you know, like to knit. There's a zillion things. So you can find something like that that you feel comfortable with. And then the third, which kind of brings, or I guess that's kind of the fourth, but this brings me into another idea that I have is doing an activity instead of just the dry meet and greet with kind of those, you know, surface level conversations can be really helpful. So what I mean by that is if we are going to get together with people we don't know, a social activity, let's do it around an, something like an actual activity, like knitting, uh, learning an instrument, playing a random sport that nobody we don't know we're not very good at but you know we're gonna try uh any number of things doing creating art uh, making ceramics um I don't know you guys anything anything you can think of doing a shared activity can be really cool and that gives you something to do and focus on and it can kind of lower our anxiety level so we can keep talking and maybe not feel like oh I don't know what to say I don't know what to say next and we turn into you know what I'm sure we're telling ourselves is a blubbering idiot but we just you know, are kind of quiet and it's hard for us to come up with things to say. So those those are my ideas. And then I do want to add in that a key component for most of, of my, you know, patients and viewers alike is the build up to this exposure. So instead of feeling like you have to engage in conversation right away, some of the ways I start um, with my patients is having them make eye contact with a stranger and smile. Now I know we're wearing masks right now, so that fucking sucks. But if you're outdoors, maybe they won't be wearing masks and you can make eye contact and you can smile. And then after doing that for a few weeks and starting to feel comfortable, I want you to strike up a conversation with someone briefly and make it someone who is, it's going to be really short lived and they're working. So this means someone at the grocery store, someone at the coffee shop, like let's say I'm at Starbucks and I walk up and I'm like, I'll have a grande ice soy latte, you know, and then I order. And as I get out my card or go to pay, I'll just say, yeah, it's really nice day today, huh? Did you have a good weekend? Like I ask a couple simple questions or statements. They say something back. I say, have a good day. I walk away. I can role play that. I can practice ahead and I can, I can nail it. It's really short lived, right? So that's the way we really move into the exposures versus like going all in. That can be a little overwhelming. It might be why you feel like it's just too much. And then having things to calm your system down in the meantime is helpful too. Fidget toys in your hand, some breathing exercises, knowing you can always excuse yourself and say, oh, I'm going to go use the restroom or I'm going to get a glass of water or I'm going to get another drink or another, another bit of food or a piece of pizza, whatever. You can just excuse yourself. <sighs> Calm your system down, use your resources and your tools in the moment, and then come back and try again. So those are just some of my ideas. If you're out there and you have some tools and techniques that worked for you, as always, please let us know. Share in those comments. It's super helpful. And so then the last part of the question, the comment below about trauma and uh, social anxiety, I would not treat them in the same way. I would treat the trauma first. Again, back to that earlier conversation about the root of the root, trauma is like, it's not always the root of everything, right? But for those of us who've been traumatized or had trauma in our lives, which I think is a lot of us, it's like this seed that this whole tree of symptoms has grown out of. And so we can have all these symptoms like self-injury urges, depression, anxiety, like social anxiety, right? Maybe I have some eating disorder urges. I can have all these things going on. And it's all 
out of that seed of that trauma. And so if you, even though social anxiety can feel like the big issue, I would encourage you to find someone who is trauma informed or a trauma specialist in your area and start that work because that will, that will do you the most good in the, you know, the shortest amount of time possible, even though trauma work can take some time. I think that that might even be, and my suspicion is that that is the cause of your social anxiety. Okay. Now moving into question number seven, and it is, hey, Katie, would you be able to talk about orthorexia a little more? How do I know if I have it? Currently, I struggle with OCD and I'm having a hard time figuring out whether my unhealthy obsession with being perfectly healthy is just another form of my OCD or part of my perfectionistic response to emotional neglect or whether it's an entirely separate issue. Thanks so much and lots of love. Lots of love to you too. Now, orthorexia, if you aren't familiar with the term, is it's not a diagnosable eating disorder, FYI, as a lot of things are in the DSM, but that doesn't make them any less relevant or any less you know, uh, prevalent in our lives. Orthorexia is kind of this urge to eat extra healthy, healthy to the point where it becomes, that's why I think it in a way it is an eating disorder and should be in the DSM, but it's like they would say it's anorexia or bulimia depending on the symptoms, but it's when our quote unquote, I don't even like to call it healthy eating it just bought that term healthy, good food, bad food just really bothers me. But it's when quote unquote, healthy eating is taken to the extreme. I've had patients who, you know, it starts out as like, well, I'm just not going to eat X food or Y food, or I'm going to become a vegetarian and vegan. Not all vegetarians and vegans have an eating disorder, but some people use it as an excuse, especially in this orthorexia space. But I'm doing it for my health. You know, I'm doing it because my cholesterol is high. My doctor told me to cut back on these things, but it becomes, it's not just healthy eating. It moves into this space where we can't in, eat food for periods of time. There's all these rules to follow. And it turns into, you guessed it, a full-blown eating disorder because it's super, super restrictive. And we can get super hung up on all the, you know, different things we can have and can't have and what meats are okay, not okay. Veggies are okay, not okay. Fats and okay, not okay. Carbs, you know, there's all this judgment around food. And I've even had patients take orthorexia so far as like, I can't eat anything that hasn't been grown and harvested within a certain radius of where I live. So it's a lot of different forms this can take. And that's, that's roughly what it is without getting into it too intensely. And maybe I should make a new video about it. You all let me know in the comments if you think that that would be beneficial. It's been probably years since I've talked about it. Now, when it comes to figuring out whether your orthorexia is, you know, eating disorder or part of your OCD, it's really difficult, I'm going to be honest, to tease that out. Because if you remember, I was talking earlier about how OCD is like we obsess about this thing and our anxiety or worry builds until we do the compulsion, the action to make that go away you can see how we could easily put that with an eating disorder, right? I feel really, really anxious about the food that I ate. And until I purge, that anxiety will only build or something bad will happen. I'll get super fat or people won't like me or whatever lies our eating disorder tells us. You can see how that could be really closely tied. I would talk to your therapist about it because it's going to be so specific to you. And my... So my belief is that the way to tell the difference, and you guys can disagree or agree, but the way I've parsed it out with my patients is, is it strictly food related? And if, because if you guys don't realize eating disorders are like chameleons, those of us who've been restrictive for a long time 
all of a sudden can start purging and binging. And then I've even had patients switch from like, oh, I only binge, I don't even purge, to purging, and then we're restricting, and then we're back, and it can just swip, swap, switch in different symptoms as it sees fit in order to still be present in our lives. And if that is part of this, like if you maybe challenge yourself to to eat a food you don't know where it came from or something like that. I mean, I don't know. Again, that was it also would be hard with your OCD. But I'd be curious if it's just food related thoughts about the, and like how we can make the eating disorder stay with us and how it you know, if it's just food thoughts that control like 90% of our brain, I would suspect that it's an eating disorder. But if we feel that it's just this anxiety builds and there's this worry about something bad happening and then we do the thing and maybe it applies to a few things in our life. Like a lot of my patients uh, will have like intrusive thoughts as part of their OCD and it can be, it has nothing to do with food. It's usually like sexual or violent in nature. Do you have those? That would be more OCD driven. So I know it's tricky, but that's how I would tease it out. And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts too, but that that's the way that I have you know, figured it out with my patients in the past. It, it is complicated and I don't I don't want to simplify I don't want to oversimplify it. That's why it's it's really important that you talk with your therapist to ensure, you know, we're really figuring it out. But either way, I think the treatment may differ, but we're still going to have to try to not do the thing and see what comes up for us and that could that could give you your answer too. And then the perfectionist response to emotional neglect, I, I'm i a big believer just over my experience with my patients and with talking to all of you for so many years, I believe that eating disorders are so often developed out of some form of abuse, neglect, physical, sexual, whatever it is, is so common. It's not all the time. If you're out there and you have an eating disorder and you're like, my everything was fine. Nothing's 100%, but it is so common. So I wouldn't be surprised, again, that the orthorexia could come out of your emotional neglect and your perfectionistic response. I wouldn't be surprised if all of this, again, what I was saying before, how like trauma is like this seed that this whole tree of symptoms comes out of. I wouldn't be surprised if that emotional neglect seed has given you, you know, eating disorder tendencies, also perfectionistic urges and anxiety that's turned itself into OCD. I wouldn't be surprised if those symptoms don't all come out of that emotional neglect. And so I really think that, you know, working to heal that with a trauma therapist or someone who's at least trauma informed will give you the best result. But I hope that that helps. I, it's very tricky and it's not so, it's not so easy to parse out, but I hope that that kind of helps you better understand it. Um, again, because eating disorders are so focused on like food and rituals and rules about that. And OCD is more about like assuaging that anxiety or fear that comes up and builds when we don't do the compulsion. But again, it can be it can be hard. And even when I'm explaining it, you might be like, well, I still don't know. But talk about it with your therapist and be honest and hopefully they'll help you better understand. Because I do think working on the emotional neglect component will give you you know, the best outcome. But if it is OCD, we want to do, you know, some exposure. The number one treatment usually for OCD is some kind of exposure therapy or ERP is very popular. It's like exposure response prevention. Um, those are all great tools as well. And I don't believe that that ERP or exposure therapy is would only work with OCD. I think it could also help you with that emotional neglect. So I think we could tie that in and, and kind of knock out that whole tree that has, you know, grown out of that seed. Okay, let's move into question number eight. 
says, hi, Katie, how important are dreams for therapy? I've been wondering about my dreams a lot lately, and sometimes I mention them in therapy, but do you think dreams can play an important role or get somewhere in therapy, or isn't it important? I guess the psychoanalytical approach puts more meaning on dreams than other approaches, but what do you think? How important are they in your experience? Dreams are interesting, and if, if you don't know already, psychoanalysis is not my favorite at all. I wouldn't put any stock. I, I, I talked about this in my first book, Are You Okay?, a little bit, and it and I even tried to put something in this. It's funny. I feel like every time I end up researching styles of therapy, I end up like shitting on psychoanalysis because the traditional form of psychoanalysis is super, super long-term treatment, and there's not much therapeutic relationship, and a lot of the research and the tools have been debunked and proven to not be effective. And so, yes, it needed to exist, and Freud and all the, you know, the fathers of psycho, I guess, like psychology as a whole, not just psychoanalytic theory, but just like psychology, um, they needed to exist and it needed to be here so that we could get to where we are. And I know some people will disagree and there's a lot of clinicians who still love to practice it. I just feel like there are so many better ways that we can treat patients that don't take years and years and years. And so I personally um, don't believe that dreams are that effective in therapy. They're not important. They can be if you feel that they, you know, like you have this recurring dream. I think it's fine to bring it up. Dreams are in essence, are a way of our brain processing things in our life. And sometimes they make sense. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're helpful. A lot of times they're not. I don't put much stock in my dreams. Usually they have a, a clear like link, you know, where I'm really stressed about something and I have like stress dreams. Or I was talking on our podcast, this is like months and months ago, about how my dream, I just kept having to go to the bathroom and I couldn't find like a toilet to go. And I was and I woke up and was like, oh my God, I guess I should go pee. That wasn't what it was. Um, I didn't even have to go pee. And I was like, that's so weird. And then I looked it up online, Googled it, which to whatever, you know, who knows how reliable that is. But it was like, you're, you're going through like, you're trying to get rid of something like you're moving past something like you're reading your body of a, a stressful thing. And it was kind of true at the time. I kind of was in line with what I was going through and how I was feeling. And so, so anyways, I don't put a ton of stock in it. But if it's something, if you had a dream that bothered you or a recurring dream, I think it's worth bringing up. But if if you just like, I don't always remember them and sometimes they just don't make any sense, I wouldn't worry about it. Therapy is more about patterns that we see in our life and relationships, ways that we interact with other people and how we can improve that, like communication, stuff like that, processing through issues, getting to know our feelings more and like overall gaining more insight into why we act and are the way that we are, right? It, that's kind of what we're getting to. And so in processing through, obviously, I don't want to leave that out, like any of the upsets and, you know, traumas and things that we've been through in our life. It, that's what it's really about. And dreams can assist that and might not at all. And in my experience, I never ask my patients about their dreams, by the way. So I don't really put much stock in them. And there was a comment below this that said, I also have been wondering about the importance of dreams. Should I be concerned about having dreams of hurting my mom. I would never actually do that unless she was hurting me and it was in self-defense, but the dreams are really disturbing. I would bring the, those up because they're disturbing. See, we're having an emotional response because of the dreams. And my, see that, then that's that's worthy of bringing it up. But I a lot of dreams don't mean anything. Um, 
but I would be curious about that as a therapist. I would wonder like, hmm, you know, has, have you been upset with your mom recently? Like, uh, are there things that you don't feel you can communicate with her about? Or, you know, has she been abusive in the past? I'd have lots of questions about that. And that might open up our conversation to, you know, a place of, of more deeper understanding and insight into your life and what maybe you've been through with your mom and why this is coming up in the way it's coming up. Again, it's not always like easily connected, but it's worth at least talking about and asking. Okay, question number nine says, hi, Katie, I've been feeling very meh lately. Join the club. I do college work online and I, um, I seem to just roll out of bed and onto my laptop, sometimes even doing college work in my pajamas. I am not the most organized person in the world and I've always failed at routines. I love to run and do exercise, but I find myself on the phone most of the day, losing myself in something rather than being present. What would you recommend to get out of a funk, a COVID lockdown funk? Thanks from Ireland. Oh my God, we're all in this COVID lockdown funk. I feel it. And that meh, man, you guys, it's like palpable. I feel like it's everywhere. I don't know if any of you are experiencing what I'm experiencing, but it's like, it's just so exhausting. And I feel like the news keeps telling us, like they're moving these goalposts farther where I thought things would be getting better. No, this will be that. And then we open up and nope, nope, nope. And then, you know, anyways, I don't need to get into it. You all are living it. You know it too. And even for a lot of you I know in states that are more open are still feeling nervous about it. And like, it's still stressful, right? It's not like it disappears overnight. It's still hard and we're still feeling bleh. And so, okay, exercise helps and I'm glad you do that. Part of of getting out of the COVID lockdown funk, I'm going to be honest, is to plan to see some people. That's what really helped me. Sean and I driving up to Washington, as much of a pain in the ass as that was, it was the safest mode of transportation for us to get here. And we did it in one day. I know it's very fortunate. Not all of you can do that. But if you have any friends or relatives, people you love nearby, quarantine or get tested or whatever you feel safe doing, make a point of seeing them in person. Do it safely. If you want to be outside with masks on, do that. I don't care. But seeing people, oh my God, breaks you out of that funk. It was the best thing for me, aside from the other things I've been telling you guys that I've personally been doing, which is like those full body shakes. And I was just talking to a member of our community about them because when you really shake for any amount of time, you're out of breath. It's like, I'm surprised at the effort it takes for me to shake my whole body. It's like a very intense and unattractive dance that you do. So doing those full body shakes can can help. Um you know, making time for good conversations with people, taking time off. I know you're in school and like we don't have full control over our school schedule, but just taking some days off from working at any point, like whether it's school or work or maybe it's your side hustle or it's this passion project you have or even a hobby that like is kind of work related. I think the one thing I've recognized, and I thought about doing another video just like processing COVID, but like, I don't know if I want to talk about it anymore. But um, I think because that last year and part of this year, it's like, I felt like it was stolen from us, like it disappeared, like it didn't exist. In that, there was no breaks. Uh, it's just like day, night, day, night, day, night. And so I didn't take as much time off as I normally would. I never really got like, uh, I never had any events where I could be creatively f- like, I don't know, the breath in I talk about, you know, like, oh, just feel so inspired by people. I didn't get to connect with other creators and learn what other people are doing and hear about their process. Like, 
that's really important for me. And so I never really got any of that last year. And I'm starting to feel it. I'm starting to feel the burnout. And I think the way that we can connect, if we can find ways to connect with the people like we normally would have, I know it won't be in the same way, but find a few people, do it safely and see them because this whole lockdown quarantine bullshit is like really taking its toll on our mental health. And I think another thing for day to day is setting aside from your workout, let's pick two small things that you want to do each day and plan it out in a he- like ahead of time so that you can, you know, uh, get together with that one person that day we planned it or I watched that favorite show or maybe I do face masks on Fridays and um, call my friends and we watch a rerun of Sex and the City. I don't know. I'm making things up, but I think we kind of have to have a few things in our week to help. It's not about like the strict routine or schedule. It's more about having something to look forward to. I would encourage you, this has been huge for me, is just setting alarms to get up and trying to keep a somewhat of a regular schedule because I don't know about any of you, but like the urge to stay up late and sleep in or just sleep in has been really big right now. And it's like, I'm not feeling that motivated. And I don't, you know, it's like, why? And I don't, I don't mean to be a downer. I just want to be honest with you all because it's Oh, I feel it. Um, but those alarms and getting up and just starting the day has been really helpful too. It just gets me going. Um, and changing out of sleep PJs into daytime PJs. That also helps. Even though it's still PJs, who wants to put jeans on when you're at home? Am I right? Um, but you can, I'd encourage you to, if you can afford it, find a, a cute couple of sets of PJs. I know Gap has this huge sales right now. I don't know in Ireland what you guys have, but they might be on Amazon too, or you know, there might be your little local yokel shop has some cute sets. You can get those and, and have like your school outfits that are pajamas and comfy, but cute and feel like you're changing your clothes and, you know, washing your face. Like some of that stuff and routine wise can help just changing at least a little bit. Um, I hope that helps. You know, I, I we're all in it. I wish I had better advice. It's just been really, really hard. And I think some of those things are just some of the things that help me and hopefully it helps you. And as always, you guys leave things in the comments because I'm needing just as much help and advice as you guys are on this one because it's been rough. Okay, question number 10. My therapist challenged me. Oh, before I get into this, by the way, the last two are just these random selections. Remember, we'll do that so that all of you can get your questions answered, even if it doesn't get the most thumbs up or you don't get your question in right away, because I've heard from a lot of you, it's more about getting your question in earlier than rather than, you know, it being like the question that most people want to hear. So I've tried to pick just random. My therapist challenged me when I said I wasn't going to get super personal. He asked when I was going to stop holding him at arm's length and allow him to be personal with me. That's a weird way to phrase it. To be honest, I don't know why I keep him at arm's length. He's the one person I do trust, but at the same time, I'm still protecting him or I'm still protecting myself and I'm not sure from what. I don't believe he would hurt me. I've um, been able to tell him some things that I haven't told anyone else, but I've also avoided talking about some things. Oh, defense mechanisms. Whether I'm afraid of my pride, perfectionism, shame, or fear, fear of humiliation, I just can't go there, and I need to know why I can't get there. To be honest, I think sometimes it's helpful to, cons- to instead, of, instead of trying to push through and talk about these things, to just be curious again, not judgmental, just curious about what would come up for you if you were open and honest. Like as you think of these things that like you would never tell anybody, you haven't told him and you're afraid to even talk about, 
I would encourage you in your own time, maybe it's through journaling or even just thinking about it, what would it mean to me if I told him? And what is it about that that's causing me to hold back, right? We have to just actually imagine ourselves doing it and notice what comes up for us. Is it the shame and the humiliation and your pride? I used to do that in therapy where I wanted to be the perfect patient and get everything just right. And so try to figure out like where it's coming from. What comes up for you? Just be curious on your own. Sometimes you'll be surprised how much more honest we can be with ourselves outside of that relationship. Because if it is that pride and perfectionism or the shame, we can worry about what someone else is thinking. And I just want you to be curious about that. Instead of judging yourself and being like, I don't know why I worry so much. This is so stupid. I'm so stupid. Blah, blah, blah. All that shit talking we do. Now's not the time for that. Instead, I want you to think, hmm, why is that? Like, what is it? Why is it that I value what someone thinks so much, so much so that it's affecting my therapy? And if we don't even know the answer, it's okay. Even knowing that is helpful and you can bring that information in. And that's what I want you to share with your therapist. It's not so much about like keeping you at arm's length and I don't know why and blah. It's more like I've been thinking about it. I've been trying to figure it out. And these are the things I suspect. Like you told, you obviously have some ideas here. It's your pride, perfectionism, shame, fear of humiliation. Let him know that. You know, I don't like people to think ill of me and I'm afraid you will. Okay? You can dig into that. Knowing that when you bring up these kinds of roadblocks, they're really just defense mechanisms. And when you do it, don't think that your therapist is going to force you to talk about the thing that you're telling them you're not comfortable with. It's more about the the defense mechanisms in the way. And we get to talk all about those specific things, work through those so we can move into those things, the, the real issues later. Does that make sense? So I don't want you to feel like when you bring this up and they're gonna be like, well, let's process through and talk about that. No, you don't have to move into it quickly. It's more just about being curious about that pride that we feel or perfectionism or fear of humiliation, any of those things, just being a little bit curious. It goes a long way. It'll help you better understand yourself. And if you can, at the very least, try to show yourself some compassion and understanding. Doesn't mean we have to think positively about this. We can say, it's more bridge statement land, right? We could say something like, it is my perfectionism getting in the way, which is frustrating, but I, I know where it comes from, or I get it. I think it's this. And just trying to be, to show yourself a little validation, a little compassion as you work your way through it. Um, and know that we all have defense mechanisms. We all struggle to let therapists in. Although there are some of us like myself who are just like, you know, verbal diarrhea, tell them everything. But being honest and really digging into the hard things always takes a while. And so just being curious about that process and, um, you know, being kind to yourself along the way will really help. Okay, our final question, question number 11 says, can you heal attachment without having to do inner child work? Hmm. Picturing myself as a child and pretending to talk to myself makes me deeply uncomfortable. I am autistic for context and I have aphantasia. I hope I'm saying that right. And can't visualize anything in my head. Okay. So technically speaking, I think you could heal You could heal from abuse in your past without having to do inner child work, but here's what I would encourage you to do. So let's not do the picturing. If it's hard for you to visualize things, let's just throw that out. Let's not do it. It is perfectly okay for you to write a letter 
to younger you. I don't know if you can do that, but let's try it. So we're not visualizing. I just want you to take yourself back in your head to you at that age, because it's not really a visualization. It, you know what it was like. Yeah, it was you. So if we can take ourselves back to that time, and we can maybe write a letter to that that age of us, or we can, you know, have some kind words that we say to ourselves at that age, or even if it's just a deeper understanding, all of that is really that inner child work. It doesn't have to be so specific to I visualize myself at that age and I, you know, picture myself as a child and pretend to have these conversations. A lot of it can just be tapping into, even as adult you, reflecting back. Maybe we don't even imagine that you're younger. It's like, I'm just reflecting back on that shitty time that I had. I can, in my head, I know what it was like. I experienced it. I lived through it. Could we write a story about that? So that might be a way for you to work on that without having to do kind of that like uncomfortable inner child work where you imagine you're a child. A lot of people don't like that. I've heard from a lot of you doing like other parts work and types of therapy where you're like, it's a little too woo woo for me. That's totally fair. And so I think that instead of feeling like you have to write the letters or have conversations or imagine yourself at a certain age, maybe it's more helpful for you to just think back as adult you and remember what it was like and write that story. Because I think the reason that we talk so much about inner child work is really just being able to tap into how we felt back then. A lot of us aren't able to do it as an adult. We can't reflect back because memories can be hard to come by. And so we can, you know, try to picture ourselves like pictures can help even. That might help you too. Visualization's hard if you look at a picture of you. So it's actually a tangible thing. That could be another way in. But again, for some of us, you know, it's easier if we do that, then we can recall more. But for you, it sounds like maybe that's just not the way in. So we'll try something else because where there's a will, there's a way and we'll figure it out. And I would also encourage you as you try to do this work in therapy, you know, let your therapist know, hey, that makes me uncomfortable. I can't visualize. That doesn't work for me. It's perfectly okay to tell us that. That's it. It's actually more helpful. Otherwise, we're going to keep trying to push you down that one path and you're like, this is not working. And that's not what we want. We want to be working together. It's not me, you know, tugging you behind me, like, oh, forcing it. It's us working. You telling me, hey, that didn't work. I tried that homework. It was really hard. I couldn't do it. And then we pivot and we try something else because we've got tons of tools and techniques and tricks up our sleeve to help you process more quickly and feel better as fast as possible. Thank you guys so much for your questions. If Again, if you are new, I ask these on the community tab of my podcast channel, Opinions That Don't Matter. My podcast comes out every Thursday. Sean and I's Silly, Goofy, Ridiculous podcast comes out on Saturdays. If you're looking for just an escape from the milk of 2021, you can go over there and hang out with us. Um, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week, and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.